Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. All right, this morning we have Pastor Matt Moran from Community of Grace Church in Buffalo, New York, just outside Buffalo. Uh, Pastor Matt, many of you know him, but his Master Matt served here for five, six years in the Melrose congregation. Um, and his fingerprints are all over a ton of, of what we do here. So even if you don't know him, if you don't know Laurel, their fingerprints are all over this congregation. God used them mightily to build a culture of, of gospel centrality, of, of transparency uh, with one another, and working to submit to Jesus in every area of life. So it's a tremendous blessing that they would come and hang out with us this weekend. Uh, they've been in Amherst for five years, Buff, outside Buffalo for five years now. Uh, Matt's lead pastoring a church there, and they're seeing some, some really, cool, a really cool season of growth and fruitfulness there. And overall, last thing I'll tell you is they're, they're really great folks. They really are. The only real knock is they're Buffalo Bills fans, and they can't help it. They don't know better. And so we're just going to work through that whole thing. But um, if you would... Uh, yeah, just enjoy this time hearing from God's word from a good, good brother of ours. Good morning, everyone. It's a, it's a delight and a privilege to be here. Um, my name is Matt Moran. Uh, if you don't know Laurel and I, we moved to the North Shore in 2007 and became part of Seven Mile Road that weekend. Uh, our family was part of this congregation for close to 10 years. Our oldest three children were all born in this area. I was part of, part of the pastoral team for, here for six plus years and couldn't be more thankful for my time here. Uh, this church and the larger Seven Mile Road family of churches is really at the core of my DNA. And there's so much of the health and the, the health of what we've been able to experience in Buffalo is very directly attributable to the time that we've spent here. So it's a, it's just, I'm just grateful to be here this morning. Would love to catch up with any of you. I'm going to jump into the text right now. We are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, 13 through 34. When we were first talking about this, Justin gave me the option of um, re-preaching, something that I had done before, playing the hits, so to speak, um, or, or joining in on this sermon series. And I'm glad we chose to stay in the sermon series. This text has been an encouragement and a challenge to me. I know that the Holy Spirit has something to speak to us this morning. So if you look at Luke 12, I'm going to start to look at this text. It begins with an incident where someone comes to Jesus and is trying to get him involved in a dispute. Chapter 12 is kind of part of a larger teaching on fear. Jesus... Uh, Taught last week, you probably heard this from Justin, uh, Jesus preached about freedom from the right kind of fear. There's a larger narrative of fear threaded through chapter 12, and Jesus is addressing that today. So to give you a little bit of the sense of the setting, earlier in the chapter, Luke has noted that the crowds are so intense, people are afraid of getting trampled on. They're, ga they're gathered together that tightly. So this teaching is located inside that social setting of people kind of swarming around, bumping into each other. And in that chaos, someone tries to get Jesus's attention. Verse 13 says, 
someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So it was common in those days to call upon a rabbi to settle a dispute. This is not like if you came to me or to any other minister and just said, would you help me with a legal problem that I'm dealing with? And we could just say, that's not my area. The man in the crowd had a real issue. He had a real problem and he wanted help from the rabbi, which is not unusual. And I read this and I I tend to be a people pleaser. I tend to try and make people happy. And because of that, these words of Jesus are just wonderfully instructive. Someone comes to him with what is surely a legitimate issue. And Jesus just says, I don't care about that at all. He gives this man what must have been a terribly dissatisfying answer. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's interesting. Most likely, this man had a, had a point as far as the inheritance went. My guess is that he had a legitimate grievance, and if, that, if he could get an objective party to look at the situation, that party probably would have sided with this man. But Jesus just is not dissuaded and does not get involved. Later on, if we look at Luke's gospel, he says, my mission is to seek and to save the lost. That's how Jesus describes his mission in Luke 19. And at this moment, this man tries to get him sidetracked. Jesus stays on mission. He does not get involved in the man's dispute. And he said to him, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then verse 15, he said to them, meaning the wider watching crowd, he said to them, now we're zooming out to the crowd at large who's observing this interaction. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's Luke 12, verse 15. So Jesus is considering this, mo- this moment to be a teachable moment for the good of the wider crowd. He's giving them a warning. You might not care. You might not care about this man's inheritance. But what he's dealing with is a symptomatic of a disease that we all need to be careful of. Be on your guard against all covetousness, says Jesus. So to covet is to fix your desire on something. It carries with it this idea of intense longing to kind of to stretch after or to reach after. Now, this isn't like a new concept for most of us. We've probably heard this idea before. We know, right? We are aware of the danger of covetousness, something that we don't need or think that we need to have. We, we're aware. You don't need to go to church all your life to know that the most important things in life are not money or possessions. You don't have to have grown up in church or to profess faith in Christ to have heard that before or even to believe that on some cognitive level. We know. There was a, uh, there was a Frank Capra movie in 1938. It had Jimmy Stewart in it before they made It's a Wonderful Life together. But before they made that movie together, they made another movie called You Can't Take It With You. Some of you have probably seen this before. You Can't Take It With You. It's an 84-year-old movie. You can probably find something better to do on Sunday night, but, but that expression has stayed in the popular culture. You can't take it with you, right? We know this. We're aware of the fleeting nature of possessions. 
and we're aware that greed and covetousness also has a power to destroy relationships. We've probably observed this. Thou shalt not covet. That's the 10th commandment in Exodus. And yet, despite our knowledge, we need to be warned again. We need to hear this warning from Jesus. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Because we're susceptible, aren't we? How susceptible we are to covetousness. J.C. Ryle was a British minister in the 1800s. He wrote about covetousness. And first he said, he said, it would be hard to say which sin is the most common in the world. But then he said, and I'm quoting now, it would be safe to say that there is none at any rate to which the heart is more prone than covetousness. It was this sin which helped to cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first estate. They coveted something better. It was this sin which helped drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted, and so they fell. It is a sin which ever since the fall has been the fertile cause of misery and unhappiness on earth. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So evidently, Jesus looked at this man and saw that covetousness was a far greater danger than the possibility that he would not get a fair share of his inheritance. And after this warning, Jesus goes on to tell the crowd a parable, a story with a purpose. Verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? This is what is known as a good problem to have. The man's fields are producing so robustly that he does not have enough room to store all his crops. The idea here is of a man who is wealthy enough that he is not actually the one laboring in the fields. Other people are doing that for him. So in the Jewish context, that would put him in the upper 1% of the social stratosphere. He's not really needing to work. Other people are do it working for him. And there's growth, there's expansion, there's more. Things are going well. He's rich, he's getting richer. And there are options at this point. What should I do with all this growth? Isn't it interesting? Growth always creates interesting options and conversations whether it's first century Palestine or 21st century America. It could be a business that has to think about franchising or going public. It could be a church that's running out of seating. It could be a family that says, are we really buying a minivan? Right, it, any of those things. Like, growth always presents hard conversations and interesting possibilities. And you might notice that this man, as you read the parable, this man that Jesus is describing, he's very thoughtful. He probably didn't get here by being stupid. And the man has a conversation with himself. Jesus gives us a look at this internal dialogue that he's having. Verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
The plan is for expansion, right? The man has hatched a plan that makes total sense in his mind. He has no idea what the future actually holds. His plan is based on this faulty assumption. He assumed that the situation would be stable and he'd be able to enjoy all the surplus. And we have reminders in our own lives all the time of our own fragility, but we tend to kind of blow past them. Maybe, have you ever been to an estate sale? An estate sale typically happens after the owners of a house have died. Now the possessions that the owners have spent a lifetime accumulating are being sold by the estate sale company for 20, 30 cents on the dollar. Usually these sales happen on like a Friday, Saturday. On the Friday morning, moments before the estate sale begins, dozens of gray-haired people are lined up on the sidewalk, waiting to get into the house, waiting to get into the house. And then a few minutes later, after the estate sale opens, you'll see the same gray-haired people walking away, thrilled with their purchase of, of antique lamps or old pieces of art or collections of porcelain figurines. And they have not computed yet that in 10 or 20 years, the estate sale people will come to their house and sell the lamps again. You would think, you would think that going through the collectibles of a deceased person would be a reminder to us, you can't take it with you. But somehow it's the reverse. Instead, it makes us think, I need more of that dead person's stuff. Our rich man had not calculated his own fragility he had a dialogue with himself, and he did what made sense to him, and then God appears. And God speaks right into his presumptuous thought bubble. Verse 20 and 21, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When God breaks in, the rich man is ultimately unprepared. And the irony here is that he was preparing. That he's smart. That's why he made all that money. He was a prepared person. That's why he was making a plan for the future in the first place. But he was like the person that stays up all night studying for the test. And in the morning, it was the wrong subject, right? It was the wrong subject. We can prepare and think and plan. We can be smart people. We can get it all wrong. You can put all sorts of time into your 401k or, or your 529 savings plan. You can meet with your financial advisor, even extra time, so you can still get it wrong. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's a contrast here between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. And the problem was not that the rich man was wealthy, Jesus isn't making a moral judgment in this passage about the fact that he had money or wealth. It's that he was not rich towards God. The idea that his wealth could have been used for generosity, for love of neighbor, for heavenly purposes, never seems to have crossed the man's mind. And Jesus wants the crowd to know. Wealth is seductive. It creates a false sense of security. It seems like it could satisfy, but it often leads to more covetousness. It would seem like it would create opportunities for generosity, but in the case of this man, that doesn't seem to have occurred to him. Wealth can create a dangerous sense of complacency. And what he's anticipating are all these relaxing, peaceful years, eat, drink, be merry. It's a very abrupt end for this man. 
It's a very memorable image that Jesus presents. And you might say at this point, okay, I see the warning against covetousness, but I'm still not sure that, like, as far as my life goes, I've heard the practical counsel that I need. These problems like the inheritance or the growing company or what to do with my financial resources, sure, maybe those are first world problems, but they're still real problems, and they might be my problems, and we still live in an insanely expensive world. What does that really mean, to be rich towards God? Well, 13 through 21 is kind of a sermon in itself, and we usually stop there. But when we look at what is going on in the context of Luke's gospel, typically the story of the rich man is a unit by himself. But we see that Luke is locating this teaching in Jesus' broader teaching. Jesus has been addressing fears in this chapter, our fear of man, fear of danger, fear of persecution. And then if you look at verse 22, it's clearly linking the parable of the rich fool with Jesus' broader teaching. Because Jesus says in 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And your Bible probably has a paragraph indent. But then he said to his disciples, therefore, verse 22, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Therefore, don't be anxious about your life. That therefore is, is kind of like saying, in other words, in light of this parable that I just told you about the rich man who died unexpectedly, don't be anxious about your life. Now, normally, usually if you read, if we read about someone we know that's our age, or maybe our parents' age, and we see that they died unexpectedly, we think, wow, that could happen to me. Or we think that could happen to them. Our natural reaction is to be concerned not to think, don't be anxious. Only Jesus would tell a story about a rich man dying unexpectedly and then say, well, the point is this, don't be anxious. Right? If, if Herb Chambers had a heart attack and died, and he read in the Boston Globe, Jesus would look at the front page and say, see, don't be anxious. And we ought to ask, how is the reality that death comes to us all and often unpredictably supposed to make us non-anxious. But Jesus starts to explain. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? That's through verse 24. So right in this passage, Jesus starts to give the reasons why we don't need to worry. The first is that life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And the second, Jesus says, is you're more valuable than birds, and God cares for them. How much more is he going to care for you? He tells us to look at the birds and see how God, the maker of the world, takes care of even them. And after establishing those reasons not to worry, Jesus says in verse 25, and which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Well, that's a rhetorical question, of course, but the rich man clearly couldn't extend his life for even one hour, despite his resources. His money wasn't helpful for that moment. Okay, so there's a sense in which we read this and we think, okay, I agree with Jesus and say, okay, yes, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing, but I still need to buy food and clothing, don't I? 
And I just saw a dead bird in my yard. Like, I'm not, like, if I'm not supposed to worry, I'm not worrying because I want to. I'm worrying because of, I have all these responsibilities, all these things that I feel responsible for. So how is this really practically helpful? But Jesus isn't done yet. His teaching on the futility of anxiety does not simply close the book on the issue. He goes on to say, he says, if you, if you, verse 26, are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The lilies of the field, those are kind of like our cherry blossom trees. They bloom beautifully right about this time of year, and then they're gone. They disappear. They're naked the rest of the year. And Jesus is saying, if God has so much abundance for these really unnecessary things of nature, can't he take care of you? And that image of the grass in, in Palestine, there wasn't enough wood for everyone to make fire, so the dry grass was used for fuel. The grass was so transient that it would be bright and green one day, burned up the next, used for fuel supply. But even at this point, you still might say, yes, I understand that worrying isn't really productive, and these references to the world of nature, they're very charming, but still, how does it help? Like, I can't stop worrying. And I didn't get to where I am today by just being carefree. Verse 30, Jesus says, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is speaking to Israel right now. Israelites, think about the audience for a second. Jesus is talking to God's chosen people, the people that God redeemed out of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them across the Red Sea. When they were enslaved, God delivered them, and they left Egypt carrying the jewels of the ones who had enslaved them. When they needed bread, God sent manna. When they were thirsty, God sent them water from a rock. God brought them out to a land so super abundant, it was described as flowing with milk and honey. And now we think about, that's their history. That's the history of the audience who's hearing this. And we think about now about the expansion of the kingdom of God, how Jesus comes to bring his rule and his reign into our hearts and minds. And really, as readers, we are the church, the new Israel, the people of God, the people that God made for his own possession. And all the nations of the world are thinking about gas prices, inflation, mortgage rate hikes, how to break into the housing market, how to pay for college, how to care for their aging parents. And Jesus says, your father already knows. Jesus is saying, if God possesses you, you don't need to worry about possessions. Instead, seek his kingdom. And Jesus looks out at the crowd in verse 32, and I believe these are his words for us this morning. He said, fear not, little flock, 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the ground of our ability to seek the kingdom. Jesus looks out over the crowd. He knows they're harassed. He knows they have many worries and concerns. And he says, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We seek the kingdom not because we're so good at computing what are our really ultimate priorities. We seek the kingdom because it's already been given to us by the grace of God. We seek the kingdom because God came and sought us. I hope you hear the announcement of God's grace there. We don't earn the kingdom. It's God's gracious gift to us. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're loved by the Father. He sees you. He sees your fears. And he knows. And because of Christ, he welcomes you. I was thinking about this passage this week. And it made me remember a time years ago sitting with Jacob in gospel community. We were with a few other guys. We were at Kelly's Roast Beef. And we were talking about generosity and the challenge that it can be to give when you feel like you don't have any margin. And there was a younger guy in the group, and Jacob was pushing him a little bit, challenging him to begin to give and to truly trust God with his money. And the younger guy listened and said, basically, so you're telling me that if, that if I give, well, then God's not going to, like, let me run out. And Jacob said, I'm not even saying that. And I always remember that because the application of this passage is not be generous or seek the kingdom first and God will reward you by allowing you to maintain your previous comfort level. The application is if you are in Christ, well, then God has you. He has you and you belong to a father who loves you. We're never gonna lack things to worry about here on earth. But by the grace of God, it's his pleasure to give us the kingdom and therefore we can seek it. That's what Jacob was saying in so many words. And that's what, what Jesus is saying here is, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All the opportunity that we have to live and trust for him that's spelled out in these final verses, that's, all that, that's where that comes from. Sell your possessions, Jesus says, and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.